Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Our scripture reading uh, for today comes from the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 19. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Jason and I'm one of the pastors here and have the honor of, of looking at this passage of scripture with you today, Luke chapter 19. As you're turning there, uh, just want to kind of echo one of the announcements that Blake gave earlier. Next Sunday, as he mentioned, Colin Hansen's going to be over at the Collective at 5 p.m. for the Covenant Institute. If anyone here has ever gotten on the, the webpage of the Gospel Coalition, I don't know if that's something that you're familiar with, but it's a, it's a great resource for Christians, the Gospel Coalition or TGC. Um, Colin is the chief editor of the Gospel Coalition and really has his his you know, finger on the pulse of culture and theology and the collision of those. He's going to be talking about Christianity in post-modernity next week. So that's going to be a great lecture. If, uh, if uh, You definitely want to mark that on your calendar, 5 p.m. Um, over at The Collective. And Colin's a good friend of Christ's covenant, and he's excited to be with us next week. Luke 19, 1 through 10, the gospel writer Luke is writing these things to us under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us today with authority, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us, and so let's hear together the word of Christ. He entered Jericho, he being Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Zacchaeus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, or rather, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I give half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. There's a famous term that the American pastor and theologian kind of used. He talked about this a lot, Jonathan Edwards. He talked about the affections or the religious affections. Uh, and I think this is a helpful idea that Edwards wrote extensively about uh, but here's just a simple quote to help you kind of understand what he means by this idea. The religious affections of a person were the things that made up the core of an individual. Those things that drove his or her mind, emotions and will. The affections are what determine the direction of a person's life. And I want you to hear this very clearly. Your affections, your affections are, are set on whatever you believe will make you most happy. Your affections, the, this core of your being, is set on whatever you believe is going to make you most content, whatever you believe is going to bring you the most joy. So you can be here 
at this worship service, singing along, listening to the sermon, but that doesn't mean that at the core of your being that your affections are necessarily set on God. What is it that you're truly hoping in? And that's a great question. What is it that your affections are set on? What is it that's going to make you feel important? You know, when you're, when you're all alone, thinking about your life, what does your mind drift to? What are you hoping in? When you wake up in the morning and you think, today I'm going to be important because, that, that tells you a lot about your affections. It may be a job, it may be money, it may be a relationship, it may be adventure. When it's just you, where does your mind drift? That will tell you about your core. That will tell you where your core is set. That will tell you everything you need to know about your affections. And here we come today to a story about a man who for many years of his life, for a long time in his life, his, his affections, the core of his being was set on being wealthy, on being powerful, on being successful. We don't know a lot about Zacchaeus' background. We know that he lived in Jericho. We know that he was small in stature. And we know that he was a tax collector. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, if you grew up in church particularly, there's an old Christian song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And if you, which is kind of derogatory, you know, towards Zacchaeus and all other short people, but it's a fun song to sing. Uh, you know, if you read, for example, a lot of like children's Bibles or like the Jesus storybook, I mean, Zacchaeus is basically a midget in those depictions. I don't think that's what we're supposed to understand from the text. I don't think Zacchaeus was, you know, abnormally small. I think he was just small in stature. He, he wasn't tall. He wasn't a very big person. You know, we, we talked about this this week. Matt and Blake and I get together every Wednesday and just talk about the text. And we even asked the question, is this, is this that important of a detail? Is this just Luke being a doctor, giving us extra details? Or does it really tell us something about the nature of Zacchaeus? Is it an important detail for the story? And, and I, I think it is an important detail for the story. You know, it, there is this idea of it's tough to be the small guy. You know, it's tough to be always be called, hey, come on, little buddy. Come on, little guy. You're never the first person noticed in the room. You know, you're never usually the first person picked for the sports team. You get tired of people kind of confusing you for someone younger than you really are. I can see this being very true of Zacchaeus. Maybe being picked on as a child. Maybe being a little bit of an outcast his entire life. But of course, Zacchaeus makes up for it because another thing we know about Zacchaeus is that he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors in every age are not very popular. You know, even today, if you meet someone that works for the IRS, they just say, well, I work for the government, you know. <laughs> no one wants to admit that. There was a movie in 2006 called Stranger Than Fiction. It was Will Ferrell. He plays this guy, Harold Crick, and he's, he's meeting with Dustin Hoffman's character who's kind of serving as a counselor for him. He's a literature professor, but Hoffman says to the, the Will Ferrell character, you know, I can't Im imagine someone not liking you. And Will Ferrell responds, I'm an IRS agent. Everyone hates me, you know. So this tone still exists today toward tax collectors, but if you work for the IRS today, at least you work for the United States, a country that we love, a country that we're proud of, a country that, that we believe in. But, but in this day, in first century Jericho, it was a very different story. Zacchaeus had sold out. 
Zacchaeus wasn't working really for his own country. He was working for an oppressive country. He was working for the Romans. He was working for this, the very enemy that was the, the very people that were the enemy of Israel, that everyone in Israel believed was wrongfully ruling over them. And Zacchaeus, for money, for power, had sold out to work for, for these people that weren't just a national enemy, but they were also a spiritual enemy. There was also a religious factor here. These people are keeping us from the true worship of God. In the New Testament, you'll, you'll hear this phrase over and over, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, as if being a tax collector was especially stigmatized. It's like, you don't want to be a sinner, but you really don't want to be one of those tax collectors. They were seen as traitors. They were, even, they were seen as people that were, were guilty of treason against Israel against their own people. You know, it's one thing to be a traitor against America, right? If someone has sold out, if someone commits treason against this country, that's a big deal. Sometimes punishable by death in this country. Treason is a high offense. It's one thing to be a traitor in America, but it's something altogether to be a traitor against Israel. Not only do you share a national identity with these people, you share religious identity and more than that, you share family identity. This is not just your countrymen that you're being a traitor against. This is your brother. Everyone in Israel was a child of Abraham. They, they all shared the same lineage. They all worshiped the same God. They all were fighting for the same country. And Zacchaeus had sold out against all of that. And even the name Zacchaeus is, is a signal of this. Zacchaeus is not a Hebrew name. In all likelihood, Zacchaeus would have grown up with the name Zacchaeus. It's a Hebrew name. It's a Hebrew boy. But this, this Zacchaeus had sold out against his country. And I can just see the people saying, you're no longer Zacchaeus. You're no longer one of us. Be Zacchaeus. Take on this Roman name. Take on this other kind of name. Get away from us, Zacchaeus. You're no longer a child of Abraham. You have been cut off. You've been cut off from Israel. You've been cut off from the people. But it worked out for Zacchaeus. Worked out for Zacchaeus. Because he got rich. He got power. All those people that pushed him around when he was little Zacchaeus or little Zacchaeus, well, now he was pushing them around. Now when Zacchaeus showed up, he showed up with the full force of the Roman government, of the Roman army. People had to listen to him. You know, it's kind of, kind of like, how do you like me now? I'm Zacchaeus now, not Zacchaeus anymore. And he wasn't just a tax collector. The, the text gives us this, this extra word. He was the chief tax collector. Not only were all the people listening to him, all the other tax collectors were listening to him. Who's little Zacchaeus now, right? Who's the child now? You know, Zacchaeus would have been one of the most feared and respected, but also hated men in all of Jericho. You know, think of Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. But it seems that there was something wrong with Zacchaeus. He was rich. He had everything. He had respect. The, the Romans loved him and took care of him, but he wasn't content. It seems that there was a hole in his heart. It seems that he was looking for something. And I think there's a clue here in verse three. It says, when Jesus came to his town, he doesn't say he was seeking to see Jesus. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. 
He didn't just want to see Jesus. He, he wanted to see who this Jesus really was. Is he really the one that will bring salvation? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the one that can build us up? As we talked about, I think, a couple of weeks ago, we all are looking for a Messiah. We're all looking for that thing that will make us feel important. And I can see Zacchaeus thinking that wealth and power would make him feel important, but it hadn't. He wanted to see, not just see Jesus, he wanted to see who Jesus was. And so he does something very unexpected here. Uh, the crowd was thick. There's a lot of Jewish people there, a lot of probably religious people wanting to test out Jesus, wanting to see it was a big deal. Jesus had a big reputation. Here he is coming through Jericho. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. And so he does something incredibly unexpected. He climbed a tree. Now, so for some of y'all like me, you heard this story when, at first when you were a child. And when you hear this story as a child, it's completely reasonable that Zacchaeus would climb a tree, right? That makes sense. You're like, okay. In fact, this week I was reading this story to my children, just kind of getting them ready for this week. And, uh, you know, of course, when I read uh, children, uh, my Bible to my children, Imrianna, my six-year-old, my oldest, firstborn daughter, she's listening intently, right? She is focused in. She wants to know the answers. My middle boy, John Kellis, who's four, he's not listening at all, right? He's squirming around. He wants to play. He wants to go outside. In fact, the only time that John Kellis really perked up the whole time I was reading this story was when I talked about Zacchaeus climbing a tree because he wanted to go climb a tree, right? And so again, when you read this as a child, when I first probably heard this story when I was about John Kellis's age. It seems very reasonable, even exciting that Zacchaeus would climb a tree, but don't read this as a child. Read this as an adult. This is Zacchaeus. This is the chief tax collector. This is the main financial officer in all of Atlanta. Think about this. And there's this big rally downtown in Atlanta. And in order to see the person at the center of the rally, they are climbing a tree. Now that would be weird today. But it was particularly strange in the first century. This is a time when men did nothing that might humiliate themselves. Men did not climb trees in first century Israel, in first century Palestine. This was something that children did. And you see, that's the point. And this is my first point, the one who sees. If you want to see Jesus, if you really want to see Jesus, if you really want to see who Jesus is, you have to climb a tree. You have to be like a child. You know, it's interesting. This story comes right after a story in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus receives children and he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, who, he who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's an interesting passage. If you do not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you won't enter it. It's not like it's, it's more difficult or you'll get a lot more out of the kingdom of God if you have a childlike heart. No, it's saying that a childlike heart is necessary in order to enter into the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And, and this could be translated, blessed are the innocent. Blessed are the ones who haven't been hardened by this world. Like the children, blessed are the ones who haven't grown up yet. They are the ones who will see 
God. In 2006, I had one of the great experiences of my entire life, and I've mentioned this before. I got to travel for several weeks throughout the whole Middle East, and I was with this famous scholar, this famous archaeologist, guy named Max Miller, and uh, it was a fascinating trip, and Max had first gone to the Middle East in 1960, and he knew about so much of the history, and he'd been on all these archaeological digs, and he was a fascinating guy, but he wasn't a believer. He'd grown up as a Christian, but by this point, he was in his mid-60s. This is, again, about you know, 12 years ago, I guess, so he's probably deep into his 70s now, but Max was not a believer, but he was a, he was a fascinating man, a brilliant man. I, I still remember one night, we, we actually had just crossed from Egypt into Israel, and we were at a place in Israel where nobody ever goes, the Negev, which is southern Israel. It's, it's barren. There's not really any reason to go there. It's basically desert, but it was just, we had gotten there by this time of day, and we stayed in this hotel, and and that night, I, I went on a little walk out, out from our hotel, and there was this little place outside the hotel, and it was pitch black in the middle of the desert, southern Israel, and Max was out there. And it was this great moment. I got to talk to him. We, had, we just sat out there under the stars. It was one of those nights where you could just see a million stars, and I talked to Max, and I asked him, I said, you know, Max, what happened? What, what, why did you leave the faith? You know, you were around this stuff your whole life. You're studying this stuff your whole life. Why did you leave the faith? And he said, well, to be honest, Jason, I just kind of outgrew it. In other words, I got older. I got more successful. People started recognizing me. I figured I had to get out of the tree. There's a wonder in Christianity. And it really takes a childlike heart to believe. Not a foolish heart. Christianity is very reasonable, but a childlike heart. Christians believe in the supernatural. Christians believe in eternal life. Christians believe in the second coming of this Jesus who came 2,000 years ago. We, we believe in things that the natural world would look at as strange. We believe in things that the modern world only likes to talk about at funerals. But if, if these things that we believe are true, if a God from another world has really intersected this world and is calling us to an eternal kingdom, if that is really true, then that changes everything. It'll revolutionize everything about you. But do you really believe that? Is this just a convenient moral space that you found yourself in that helps you make sense of the world? Or do you really believe in Jesus? Are you really seeking to see who Jesus is? Are you willing to climb a tree? Or have you lost the wonder? Have you lost the ability to believe? You see, the one who sees is the one who's willing to become like a child. But secondly, this story tells us a lot about the one who seeks you know what's so interesting about this story? The most interesting line of the story to me is the last line. It's kind of the way it works for me, maybe for a lot of people. But how does Jesus end? It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek. It was Jesus that came to seek. That's an interesting line because if you read the story, it seems like Zacchaeus is the seeker, Right? He is the one that's going out to seek Jesus. But uh, really, if you think about the story, that's not what's happening here at all. You know, again, if you kind of go back to the childhood cartoon depiction of this story and all the pictures that I see, Zacchaeus is kind of hanging out the tree and Jesus walks underneath. 
And it's like Jesus, of course, couldn't have missed him. But, but none of those pictures, you know what's wrong about all those depictions that you see in the children's books? They don't actually show sycamore trees. The trees in those books are more like American oaks or maples that have big branches. But sycamore trees, if you've ever seen a sycamore tree, is, a, is very large trees. They're, they're, they're very full of foliage. So in, in all sense, it's, it's as if Zacchaeus, and this actually makes a lot of sense, was trying to kind of hide in the tree. He didn't want to be seen by Jesus. He certainly wasn't leaning out over the road. It's also interesting, if you look at this passage, if you continue reading in Luke, Jesus doesn't do anything else in Jericho. It's as if Jesus comes to Jericho to look for Zacchaeus, and that's exactly what happens here. Zacchaeus, he goes straight to him and says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. It's almost, I can almost see Zacchaeus being like, what? You've seen me? You see, Jesus isn't seeing this man in the tree and thinking, oh, that's kind of weird. No, no, Jesus is coming to seek Zacchaeus. He goes directly to his town. He goes directly up to him. And he, and he says to him, calm down. I must come to your house. It is the son of man, you see, who came to seek and to save the lost. At first glance, Zacchaeus is the seeker in this story. But no, it's Jesus who is seeking and saving the lost. And I just want to say to you, you know, experientially, it may feel like you are looking for Jesus. It may feel like early in your life, it was you that was going after, trying to figure out things and looking for Jesus. But no, but hear this, in reality, it's always Jesus who's looking for you. It's the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost. It's the son of man who is seeking salvation for you. You know, salvation came to my household in 1974. Um, you know, my, my dad's family, my mom's family too, weren't really a Christian family and they, they were kind of a part of the religious South. And so there was some, you know, they, they, they certainly were aware of Christianity, but my dad didn't know the gospel. He never really heard the gospel. But in 1974, he was playing football for Auburn. And because he was a, you know, football player and because he was a Christian, he got asked to speak at this student camp. Well, my dad didn't know the gospel. He wasn't a Christian. But he was, you know, a Christian, right? And so he goes to speak at this thing and he is speaking at the youth camp. But from what he was saying, there was a guy there that knew my dad, who was the speaker, right? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. Who was the speaker, didn't actually know the Bible. Didn't actually know the gospel. And this guy, I love it. It wasn't the youth pastor that had invited him. It was just a volunteer. It's just a guy. It was just a guy that volunteered to go with the student trip to the camp to hear the football player speaker guy trying to serve kids. And that night, this guy comes up to my dad, just a college student. He just starts talking to him, sharing the gospel with him. And for the first time, my dad heard the gospel and received Christ as his savior while he was this Christian speaker <laughs> at the camp. And my dad has no idea who this guy is. He's never seen him. But, but through that guy, salvation has come to our household. Of course, my dad eventually led my mother to faith in Christ, led myself, my sister. My dad's a pastor. God's used him in these amazing ways. Now, the Lord, my, my sister is being used by the Lord. I, I pray the Lord's using me. And I'm just thinking this all started with this volunteer youth guy back in the day. You see, my dad thought he was going to go be the speaker that night, but little did he know, no, Jesus was seeking him at the camp that night. And, and I love that story, uh, but I love the story of what happened this week in our church. You know, so many of you guys, 
You were going out, you were serving. People thought they were being served by you. Last week we had an international dinner. Some of those international students, they come, they think they're getting a meal, right? But little do they know, some of them, that at that meal, Jesus is seeking after them. You know, so many of you served moms on Tuesday night at Atlanta Mission, and they thought they were just going to get a good class on parenting, but little did they know that Jesus was seeking after them that night. Some of you came up here yesterday to serve and to be a blessing to this school, but, but little, little does I think Sutton know that maybe Jesus is seeking Sutton. You know, I was thinking this week, you know, I, don't be confused, guys. We think we're getting a good deal out of this, and, and we certainly are, and we've got a great place to meet, but what if God, in his kindness, had a bigger plan for Sutton than just us getting a good worship space out of it. What if we're here because Jesus is seeking this school and he's seeking people that are a part of this school? What if, it's, what if Jesus is at work? And that's exactly what he is doing because this is who Jesus is. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. At first glance, it seems like Zacchaeus is the seeker here, but that's not the case. It's the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost. And here's the good news. If you're here, if you don't know if you're a Christian or not and you're here, just by virtue of you being here today, hearing these songs, hearing this sermon, it is evidence that Jesus is seeking after you right now. Will you receive him? Will you call on him as Lord? He wants to come to your house in the same way that he came to Zacchaeus' house in the same way that he came to, to our house. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Will you receive him? Which brings me to my third point here, and that is the one who is saved. We've looked at the one who sees. How do you see Jesus? You, you, you have to climb a tree. You have to become like a child. The one who seeks, you know, it may seem like maybe even you're a seeker here today trying to seek some truth, but no, I want you to know this. It's actually God who's seeking you. But last, the one who's saved. Who, who gets saved? Who, who really receives Jesus rightly? Or how do we receive Jesus rightly? You know, when Jesus found Zacchaeus, he called him, he hurried down from the tree. He received Jesus joyfully, it says. But it's interesting to contrast this story with a story that we find just in the previous chapter. It's a similar story about two similar guys. Right in the previous chapter, in, in chapter 18, there's a story about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, kind of in the same way, came to Jesus very proudly saying, what must I do to be saved? In Luke 18, 20, it says, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, do not steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man says, well, all of these I've kept from my youth. Do you notice the attitude difference here between Zacchaeus and this man? Both rich men, both ruling men, both influential men. One comes to Jesus and says, here's my resume. I'm sure you'll be impressed. References are available upon request. The other man climbs a tree. And of course, when Jesus heard the first rich man, he went on to say, well, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And the, the passage says that the man walked away sad. But Zacchaeus, 
receives Jesus with joy. And before Jesus can say anything, with joy, he gives away half of, he gives what he has to the poor and he, he gives back four times to anyone he has defrauded. Do you notice the difference here? Both rich men, one walks away sad, one receives Jesus joyfully. It's all in how you receive Jesus. And I just want you to say this, when you encounter Jesus, when you really encounter the true Jesus, not the figment of your imagination that you've made up to be Jesus, but the true Jesus, the Jesus that we read about in scripture, the Jesus that is real and alive and at work, when you encounter this Jesus, you will either receive him with joy or you'll walk away sad. That's it. You will either receive him with joy and you, or you'll walk away sad. He wants to come to your house. He wants to change you. But if your affections are set on something else, whenever you encounter Jesus, you will always walk away sad. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot have two masters. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can have two masters. Now, this is a general comment Jesus is making. It is interesting that he follows it up with, you cannot serve both God and money, getting right to the heart of what so many of our masters, what our master is. But it applies to anything. Your, your work can be a master. You can't serve both Jesus and your work. If you're finding your identity in your work, then you will always despise Jesus. Because Jesus is going to ask you to be missional in your work. Jesus is going to be asked you to be generous with the profits of your work and to treat people ethically and fairly. Jesus is going to ask you when people are dishonest with you to be honest back to them. Jesus is going to say to you when people mistreat you in your work, don't be so shrewd and rough with them, but be gracious to them. Be honorable before them. And if, and if your identity is in your work, then the world will say to you, you can't do that. You can't have two masters. And, and eventually, you, if your identity is in your work, if the affections are set on your work, you'll despise Jesus. Same thing with your family. If your affections are set primarily on your family, you'll, you'll despise Jesus eventually. The other night, uh, I had the opportunity to go to the City of Refuge dinner that, that, that some of us were participated in helping with, and it was amazing night and, and Bruce Deal, who's the director there, it's this amazing ministry in one of the roughest parts of Atlanta. Bruce Deal is the director there. At one point in his life realized, you know, if I really want to make a difference in the city, I have to move right into the heart of the city. And so he, he took his family, his children, his wife, and he moved all of them into one of the roughest neighborhoods in Atlanta. He's been broken into 24 times. <laughs> He's had three cars stolen. He's been shot at him. He's had a lot of rough stuff happen to him. See, I want you to hear this. He was willing to put his family, his daughters, his son, his children, his wife. He was willing to put his family in harm's way in order to be obedient to Jesus. I wonder how many of you are willing to do that. You, you cannot have two masters, see? And some of you, if your family, if your affections are set primarily on your family, if Jesus has to be missional, if Jesus has one of your kids to be missional and not stay within a 50 mile radius of your house, 
If Jesus has to be missional with your money, maybe money that you're saving for their education, that's so great, right? You'll end up despising Jesus. You'll end up saying, how dare you ask me to do this? I can't, I can't have you. You'll either despise Jesus or you'll change Jesus into some idol that likes you to focus first on your family and not him. You cannot have two masters, Jesus says. We do this with our work, we do this with our money. Here's the deal, listen to this. Unless Jesus is what you really want, he will always keep you from what you really want. Unless Jesus is what you really want, he's, he's really bad to have in your life because he'll always keep you from what you really want. Jesus doesn't exist to give you what you really want, he exists to be what you really want. Even religion, you cannot serve Jesus in religion. I mean, look at this story. Zacchaeus, he goes, Jesus goes to be at Zacchaeus and what do the religious people say? Oh, he's gone to be the guest of this sinner. He's ruining his reputation. He's hanging out with the wrong crowd. See, religion always says, look, I've got a spotless resume. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. You should admire me. I've never done something like eat with a sinner. No, my reputation, my performance record is intact, but Jesus is so different. His kingdom is so upside down. Jesus is the kind of guy that the chief sinner wants to follow and the chief priest wants to kill. Unless Jesus is what you really want, he will always keep you from what you really want. And when Jesus comes in your life, everything changes. I mean, look at Zacchaeus. He was so proud. He was so successful. But this proud man became repentant. This greedy man became generous. This thief became just. Jesus had come into his house and everything changed. And don't miss the order of salvation here. I hear people say all the time, well, I gotta get my life cleaned up and then I can come to Jesus. I gotta get this, I gotta get this going good in my life, pastor, and then I can come to the Lord. No, no, that's not what happens at all. It's not that Jesus, Zacchaeus doesn't get anything fixed up. He's in a tree. And next thing he knows, Jesus is in his house and everything gets cleaned up. You know, if you try to clean your life up before coming to Jesus, you'll just be exchanging one idol for another. You'll just be exchanging your affections being set on your work or your family or success or something for your affections being set on your good performance record. If you try to get your life cleaned up before coming to Jesus, you'll miss Jesus every time. Don't miss the order of salvation First, Jesus comes to the house. Then everything changes. But when Jesus comes, everything does change. And I want to talk about this just for a second. Here's why, and then maybe how. Why does everything change? And everything changes because when you get to know Jesus, when you really get to know Jesus, when you really get to see how deeply he loves you, and the good plans he has for you, and the great hope that you have in him, all other idols fade away. When you really see how deeply the king of the universe, who should reject us, who should despise us, the one that came, as Matt said earlier, that lived the life we should have lived and then died the death that we deserved to die, when you really see how deeply he loves you, it changes you. Tim Keller said, the ultimate insider became the ultimate outsider and took our penalty upon himself so that he can look at us no matter what we are, no matter what we've done and say, I want to come home with you. 
why does Jesus change everything? Because when you really see how great he is, how deep he loves you, when you see that Jesus, who was in heaven, who was a member of the Trinity, the ultimate insider, was willing to be forsaken for you, cursed for you, crushed for you, so that we could come in, so that we who are outsiders could become insiders, that totally changes you. And it makes all other idols melt away. The last thing, how? How does this really change us? I was reading an article the other day about um, children who grow up in fatherless homes. And it was just saying, you know, children who grow up without a father figure around or maybe a distant father figure, an absent father figure, struggle with significance, right? They struggle with confidence. And so oftentimes children in this situation, particularly boys, struggle to do something or desire to do something significant. They want to prove themselves. They have this, this ambition to prove themselves. There wasn't a father around to encourage them. Or maybe the father was distant and they never felt like he recognized them. Or maybe they felt abandoned by their father and they wanted to do something to prove, I shouldn't have been abandoned. I really am worthy of something. Even Barack Obama in his book, The Dreams of My Father, talks about this. This absent father is the one that drove his life. The ambitions of this absent father is the one that gave him all of his ambition. Now, you may have not have had an absent father. You, you may have had a father that was, that was great, that was encouraging. I have that. My dad, he calls me all the time and encourages me. Yet still, yet still, even folks like us, there is this hole in our hearts this desire to prove ourselves, this lack of contentment, where does it come from? And I believe that ultimately, it comes from a deep knowledge that we really are separated from our Father, from our true Father. This is what sin does. Sin has cut us off from our Father. Because of our sin, we've, we've had to get out of the garden, away from the Father, away from the presence of the Father. And there, since that day, from that day to this, there is this desire to get back in, to do something worthy enough to get back in. But here's the message of the gospel. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, who'd been cut off. You're no longer a child of Abraham. You've, you've, you betrayed us, Zacchaeus. You betrayed us, Zacchaeus. You're out. And what does he say to him? What is, what is the promising word that Jesus says to him? He says, for he also, this man who'd been cut off, he says, for he also is a child of Abraham. Welcome home. Welcome back, Zacchaeus. Welcome in. Because I have come to your house, you have been restored you can know your father again. You can carry this identity. And I just want you to hear this. This is exactly what Jesus has come to do for you, to call you home, to call you in, to make you significant, to make you well again, to, so you can be the person that God designed you to be. That's the power of the gospel. So that you too, you too, you too, can be a child of Abraham can know your right father and be made well. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this enlightening story. 
And I pray that you would, by Christ and in Christ, bring us home today. Restore us to our Father today. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this good news that that makes us right, that makes us well, that heals us, that takes the corrupt, the unjust, the greedy like us and and makes us just and righteous and, and, and generous and well. So Lord, I pray that this this gospel news, the work of Christ would, would wash over our hearts today, would renew us, renew our hearts and minds. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.